0: Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP.
1: Ah. Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Uncursed. Oh, Question nice to you, Rose. Run for your life. Stupid Fatality. I'm Batman. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you happen to be. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to join us for Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. Well, welcome one and all to the very first episode of Season 5, but before we get into this week's interview, it's our pleasure to make the following announcement. Sometimes, with all the events we have to cover and the interviews we record, we need a decent boost to get through all the demands. With great thanks to the fine folks at Death Wish Coffee, we and our guests going forward will be fueled by the world's strongest coffee. The team at Deathwish Coffee also run a cracking podcast. The Fueled by Death podcast asks the question, what fuels? you a question not dissimilar from the questions we ask on release the geek please do check out the fueled by death podcast by the death wish coffee team you'll find them on apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you find the best podcast content and also check them out deathwishcoffee.com for the world's strongest coffee And now on to this week's interview. In March this year, I was fortunate enough to attend San Diego Comic Fest, a great event that I'm hoping to cover in more detail next year. And with great thanks to Rob Salkovitz, I made the acquaintance of one Adam Smith. No, not The Economist. This Adam Smith is the man who has been given the mantle of executive director of the Comic-Con Museum, an initiative set up by the Comic-Con International team, the ones behind San Diego Comic-Con. A dream 50 years in the making, the Comic-Con Museum, located in Balboa Park in San Diego, will be officially opening its doors in 2021. However, the museum has been running a number of pop-up exhibits since the start of the year, one of which I was very fortunate to see. Cover Story, The Art of Comic-Con 50, explored the various art and artists that graced the covers of San Diego Comic-Con's program book, often referred to as the show's souvenir book, with some amazing pieces from talents as diverse as Dave McKean, Mobius, Starenko, Sienkiewicz, and more, giving fans a chance to see the original artworks, thumbnail sketches, and fully-colored finished pieces up close. Adam was further kind enough to sit down with me for a chat where we spoke about many things, including how his love for history, people, and pinball machines led to him self identifying as a museum geek, the origins of the word nostalgia, and that you can actually die from it, and the mission behind Comic-Con Museum, and what fans can expect. One final point, if you are in the San Diego neck of the woods towards the end of October, Comic-Con is presenting a one-day symposium on storytelling across media on the 26th. The event is free, with some comic greats, including Jim Lee and Kevin Eastman, sharing their knowledge for anyone interested in a career in storytelling. For more information and to secure your tickets, head on over to www.comic-con.org forward slash S-A-M, that's Sierra Alpha Mike, but be warned, they're on a first come, first served basis. And now to the interview. We passed the chat that we had with Adam on to the Diva for her rating. Franku, what did the Diva have to say? The Diva has enjoyed this podcast and rates it completely salt-free. A completely salt-free rating from The Diva, meaning there are no swearies and content is suitable for all ages. Thank you kindly to both Franku and The Diva for the rating. We would also like to thank sincerely Ron Mars as an actual star for bringing us our Death Wish coffee. We wouldn't have been able to survive the last couple of weeks without it. Without any further ado, please join me, Les Allen, as we release The Geek with Adam Smith, and we get to discuss the Comic-Con Museum. And now, we're releasing The Geek. <laughs>
0: what is your profession?
1: I don't think we'll pick it up there, Adam. Okay. What, is your, what was your path to geekdom? How did it start for you?
0: I may be the only person you will ever meet that describes his or her geekdom as being a museum geek. Um, when I talk to different audiences about Comic Con, and I'm often talking to rooms full of people that that have, you know, d- developed their geekdom down different paths, um, that's what I tend to say to them: is that
1: a museum I, geek? I,
0: I think if I've if I've been Developed a, a you know sort of a, a geekdom about anything. It's 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 visiting museums. That's what I obsess over. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. That's what I study and analyze. That's what I went to school to do. And it is a very particular form of, of, of geekery or whatever. And maybe the 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 nearest. I think one of the many threads and strands of Comic Con is is clear. There's a, there is a, a group of people that express their geekdom through through th- through visiting the parks, the Disney parks especially, mm-hmm. right. you know that's a that's a clear thread. And, and in some ways, I, I I think I came to this through um, through very basically a love of history, people, um, as expressed through museums. Now, along the journey, I have also picked up um, particular interest in things like the history of video games and. Mm-hmm. And uh, in particular, pinball machines. <laughs> um, but I think the heart of it is that I've, I've always been fascinated by the history of people. And, and that goes back to sitting with my grandparents, hearing them telling stories of World War I um, and just being fascinated by this, this, this previous world. First job I ever had was interviewing veterans of World War I which is, it is, um, you know, doing what you're doing right now, mm-hmm. sitting down with a recorder, getting, getting people's voices on a rec- recorded. And, um, it, it, it's all storytelling to a, to a degree. And, um, I think on my life's journey, I have, Worked in lots of different kinds of museum. I've been in a farming museum and a coal mining museum and golf. What, what was your first airplanes. museum? What was
1: your first visit to a museum?
0: My first visit to a museum, I can, I can, I can tell you absolutely um, crystal clear. Um, we went to visit the um, Museum of Science and Industry in Liverpool, England, um, which is close to where I was born. Mm. Um, and I can tell you exactly when it was because it, 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 they had an exhibit for the one hundred fiftieth anniversary of the Rainhill Trials, which is where where the, the, they were building the first um, steam railway or the first sort of truly commercial steam railway, and they had these trials of all the different kinds of engines. Mm-hmm. And um, we had our we had our school field trip, nineteen seventy nine. I was eight years old, and I saw the original. George Stevenson's rocket. The first true um, steam locomotive was on loan from the Science Museum. And just seeing this thing, you know, I can still, as, as I'm talking to you right now, you wow. see me smiling and still <laughs> remember this thing. But it's funny, about two years ago, I took my nephews and niece back to that same museum. Um, so, you know, we'd moved on now nearly 40 years, and it was amazing the memories that came flooding back because some of the displays hadn't changed in 40 years. Oh, wow. There were was, was some dinosaur models, and it's like, oh my gosh, these are exactly the same displays that I remember that I visit when I was a kid. And some interesting connection there uh, to, to the work I'm doing today. I, I think the last thing that's going to happen at Comic Con Museum is that, that any display will last for 40 years, but who knows, <laughs> you know? <laughs>
1: What is the, the it kind of implies having this uh, fascination with museums. Museums embody uh, times in history. It's it's building a story of history so that we can know ourselves from from the past. That's very much a like a sociology type thing. These are the things that happen to to effectively understand who we are now. Mm-hmm. Is that where is that where your interest lies? Um, I think to some degree you
0: follow the path that that my career has followed in museums and you do sort of become a psychologist or a sociologist and you you really get interested in human beings and the the sort of constants of human society and and the human condition. There's a great book I read recently called Sapiens um, and um, it's basically the history of humankind. And... And there's so much that a museum professional can learn from this. Um, And particularly here at Comic-Con, just sort of realizing that, you know, the superheroes that dominate our world today are essentially following the same thread as the Greek and Roman gods. You know, Um, they, they, they have, they have the same role in society. And interestingly, when, when a, when a Roman emperor, you know, sort of changed the characteristics of one of the gods and decreed that, you know, sort of Mercury now had different skills than he used to have or whatever. Um, it's the same as the controversies that, that our fans get into when, you know, when someone changes the characteristics of Batman or something. And, and, and um, that there's a, one of the things that I've, I've learned is that nostalgia is one of the most powerful human emotions. Um, I don't know if you know the origin of the word nostalgia. I'm going to take us down a sort of an interesting call this out here. That the the, the origin of the word nostalgia, it was originally the name of a disease. Nostalgia is a a disease that you have. That sounds Um, quite apt for today as well. And and was such a powerful disease that it could kill you. So there, the last American that had nostalgia on their death certificate was um, a serviceman in World War I. You know, it was literally on his death, death certificate. He died of nostalgia. He was so homesick when he was in France, missing his people and things like that, that he just died. And and I think... I I have found that to be a real truth to a lifetime in museums, that when... When people that visit the museum can relate the experience of the museum to their own life story, their own memories, their own personal history, and that sense of nostalgia that they have, um, it, it, it it creates the most powerful experiences. And this is real for me with Comic-Con, because the pretty much the entirety of the popular culture that we deal with is within the living memory. And so everybody that visits that will visit comic-con museum in the future will bring their own personal nostalgia and there's a sort of a shared nostalgia of popular culture the nearest that i've experienced so far is i went to the rock and roll hall of fame in cleveland mm-hmm. and i realized because i one of my many sort of geekdoms is music you know i i, I love lots of aspects of of, of of pop and rock music and and I went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is a great museum of popular music, and I realized that um, I, I, I bring my own past into this place. It's not sort of tell me the story that I have no personal connection to. It's it's engaged me in a story that I'm, I'm, I'm personally deeply connected to. So you go in a rock and roll hall of fame and it's like, okay, I got certain expectations that I'm going to see Elvis and the Beatles Mm -hmm. and Rolling Stones and things like that. But what I really want to see is also the things that I really love, you know? So seeing the, the scales of justice that were up, that were held by Lady Justice on the Metallica's tour from 1988 that I went to, right. do you know what I mean, was yeah. was kind of like, that was cool. Mm-hmm. And I realized that people are going to come to Comic-Con Museum in the same way, that they're going to expect to see some Star Trek and Star mm-hmm. Wars and Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, some of the, these sort of big constants of our world. Mm-hmm. But we're really going to touch them and affect them if... Um, if we can hit a little button that's really special to them personally.
1: Mm. To, you touched on one of your areas of geekdom earlier, and I'm going th- to throw back and then keep moving forward with the, uh, the, your path to geekdom. Pinball machines. Yeah. Where, where did the fascination for pinball machines go? Everybody played them. Everybody's played a pinball machine at least once. Right. What was your first, and what struck you about these things? Um,
0: well, first of all, I think if you, know, if, you, if you really put a gun to my head, it is my deepest love, um, and it's kind of a strange one. And I don't think it relates to my first experience, because I think possibly like many people, my first experiences with pinball machines were kind of confusing i Uh did not didn't know what was going on and it it can be kind of disappointing because you keep losing the ball down the middle or down the side and Mm -hmm. you know you sort of you you walk away um so 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 actually my my very first experiences of pinball um were were, were possibly negative actually because Uh i was having them at the same time that the first wave of video games was coming through, with, you know, Space Invaders and yeah. Pac Man and Asteroids and Defender and all that kind of stuff. And that, mm-hmm. that, in my memory was like way cooler, which was, it was actually a bad time for the pinball industry for that very right. reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it all came together for me when I went to university, um, went to the University of Leeds in Northern England. And I was, I think, possibly in connection, you know, a, a shared bond that, that many kind of geeks have is that, um sometimes we're not the most gregarious of people and 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 I when I went to university and there's a lot of partying going on and a lot of deep socialization and it, I, I couldn't fit into that right. I was I, I've always been a person that's maybe had one or two really close friends not not a, not this giant sort of partying circle and so here I am at university living away from home for the first time and I just spent a ridiculous amount of time in the pinball room at the university and I found it was my that was my place right. where I could um you know I could enjoy myself but it, it there was a certain solitude about playing pinball that I that mm-hmm. was was right for me now I didn't know it at the time but I was I was playing what sort of became this almost this golden age of pinball I was playing a, a group of machines that I'm talking about 1990 to 1994, that period of time. Right. Um, the biggest selling pinball machines of all time were in that in that era. And, and I think what, it, what came together in that wave was that computer technology had, had advanced to a point that the games could tell stories progressive stories in a way that they'd never fully been able to do before so Mm -hmm. there was a combination of of computer processing power added to the what pinball always had been which is this physical thing that 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 it's not a video game it's there's an actual real steel ball there and Mm this that combined with sound and music and art just all came together into a very compelling package. So some of the some of the greatest games at, that ever have been made were made at that time. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know it. I was just they, they, you know, it was a very active pinball room we had at the university, and they would just cycle through, uh, you know, every month or so, whatever the latest and greatest machines were on the mm-hmm. market. We we play the heck out of them, and if it was really good, it would stick around for three or four months. You right. know, so that put in me. I started, remember, this is all pre-internet, and I started, you know, not just enjoying the games, but starting to wonder, who are the people that make these games? Mm -hmm. You see these little names on the machines, and it's like, there's this dude, Pat Lawler, you know, and I keep seeing his name on the machines that I like, and I want to know more about the the guy, you know, And, and I think... You know, people from different areas of geekdom, is this probably a familiar story that you're getting, you're getting pulled a little bit deeper into the story and you just start wanting to learn more and you, you start getting that newsletter that's oh. kind of, um, you know, a low budget, but there's a pinball club and oh. you start to be able to network with people. And, um, you know, so, so it's been a, it's been a lifelong interest of mine since then. And, and pinball is interesting because it, because circa nineteen ninety five, there was this sort of huge crash in pinball when um, the, the 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 big manufacturers basically went 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 bankrupt and stopped making pinball machines. Oh. Um, to to his eternal credit, a guy called Gary Stern kept the pinball industry going, um, and I'm so happy for Gary and and his company because. Like some other, we were chatting you and I about Dungeons and Dragons before yes. we started the podcast, and yeah. it's, it's clearly coming back really hard and fast right now. And for about the past five years, it's been so much fun to see pinball coming back hard and fast, you know, mm-hmm. and getting some getting some glory again. And and I think I think Stern Pinball is doing really well now, but they had to go through some really tough years because there wasn't a market in the way you know that there is that there was and that there is now, right? Um, so I've stuck with it. And I think one of the things about pinball is, is, is interesting. Um, you sort of build this mental map of where the pinball machines are. It's like I went to Santa Monica about three months ago. And I thought, okay, I was last here in Santa Monica 12 years ago. There was an Adams Family on the pier. I'm going to go back to the pier to see if the Adams Family is still there. And holy mackerel, it was still there, you know? <laughs> and and it, there's something yes. about being a pinball fan that you sort of develop. You know, you, mm. you tell me about some of the major cities in America and I'll tell you where the pinball machines mm. are because, you know, you, you sort of, you just need to know that. You
1: know? The, the Your your mentions about nostalgia earlier on, a, I've heard it mentioned that uh, if you, the, the, the music that you end up becoming interested in that is core and key to your life. Uh, I've heard it mentioned that it's the stuff that you listen to when your hormones are changing or so you're in your early teens into your mid teens and your late teens where you're developing your own identity and you're finding a connection with these songs that then hooks to the nostalgia aspect because this is, this was my format. This was my formation. This is um, I, when I pupated into and transformed into the thing that I started to become it seems like pinball was linked into that sort of time in your life as well. So, yeah. and you've got a, and then there's also that social aspect. Now you say playing pinball, you need to be focused on the machine, but it was always a pinball arcade. There was always, let's go down to the pinball arcade. So the term arcade, uh, a gaming arcade, transformed over the years when pinball machines were no longer around. So that it became a computer gaming arcade, but it was originally the pinball arcade mm-hmm. and that social collegial aspect you up against your friends who's going to get the highest score who's going to get a free play those sorts of things that uh, it seems like that might tie into the roots of nostalgia as well
0: right well as i said my, i never played as multiplayer never played multiplayer stuff um, where mm. you know I would be with friends because it was it was a very solitary activity for me and my it it was competitive because mm. getting you know if a, if any listeners see AES on a pinball machine it was me you know mm. and getting my name as up there as the grand ch- like the one in Santa Monica yeah. I did not leave that day until AES <laughs> is like has the high score you know g- grand champion on the Adams family today uh-huh. so. I think where it translated into social behavior was you realized there was a bunch of other people that you would see a lot of in the same room, mm-hmm. and that's you know that's MJR there that's like trying to trying to take my score out mm. or whatever. And, sure. And so eventually you you know you sort of develop uh, you you know it, you start talking to these people you know, and you realize that um, you have a sh- you have a shared passion for something and. Mm. Another sort of another great book that I once read was by a guy called Seth Godin called mm-hmm. Tribes, mm-hmm. Um, and that that really helped me in, in my work a lot because I realised that um, we are human beings are fundamentally very tribal, um, you know, and you see that expressed through sports or or whatever. But the 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 no question as I've sort of engaged with the world of Comic Con. This we have tribes, and and I am a member of the pinball tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have a shared worldview and a shared passion, mm-hmm. and you know, we'll, we'll kind of uh, we'll fight fight our corner if we have to. Yeah,
1: when we spoke on the weekend, the the first pinball machine that I mentioned was the Star Trek Next Generation pinball machine. Right, you knew it immediately, and it created this shared right this shared point of focus.
0: Right, it's yeah, designed by Steve Ritchie and. Um, Definitely in my top 10 um, of all the pinballs I've ever played. Start to Star next generation. By the way, there's there, there is um, if you want a low cost way to explore all these classic machines, there is a there is a piece of software or, a, or sort of you can find it on Xbox and PlayStation, mm-hmm. the app stores called Pinball Arcade, and they they right. sort of recoded a lot of these classic machines. Um, oh, wow. And it's a great way, actually, you know, without spending Tons and tons of quarters to to <laughs> um to, to to explore the these these Just classic, these classic games, yeah. Um, but the ultimate is to own your own machine, um, mm-hmm. and you know you you really take that step when when you start buying your own. So the first day, the first I I didn't really have enough money to buy a pinball machine, but I got this like screaming deal on a on a Batman Forever, and I've never looked oh, back. I... Um, and I my my. My particular, um, passion is, is, is the designer Pat Lawler, who I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, in, you know, there, there, there are debates in the community about it, but I personally, you know, I don't think anyone's ever touched him in terms of, in terms of his design of pinball machines and, and the way he approaches it. He's still doing it, which is, which is great. Um, my, my dream basement has got every, um machine that pat lawler ever made in it just as like a as a collection sure but right now i own none i i sold i had a fun house which is you you might not know the name of the game but it has like a big talking head on it Mm -hmm. and quite distinctive and and uh i sold that when i moved out here to san diego but um right now i've got an iron maiden uh, which is a really great machine. It just came out last year, and I, that was my big kind of splurge last year is that I, I, I thought, I can't live without a pinball machine. So mm-hmm. I'm living in this tiny apartment here in San Diego, and like, do, if you came in it, that like, dominating it. is this, <laughs> is this blooming pinball machine. You know? right. <laughs> but I'm happy.
1: Well, you've, moved, you've moved to San Diego for a specific purpose, so maybe you start talking about the, the museum aspect of your life. You went to university to study these things. Uh, to study museums, to study how they're put together, why they're put together. Can you maybe go into more detail as to what that fascination was and how you felt you could be involved and potentially do things, do more in this in this field?
0: Um. Well, first of all, I should put it. I should. As you're trying to explore my sort of inner geek, I should mm-hmm. mention Doctor Who. Um, I, I, I was going got,
1: to acknowledge the. You cup, see, you've yeah. got,
0: I've got a Doctor Who Morgan. if you came in my office With next the door, best there's, doctor there's of a. All. Yeah. Well, well, there's a full yes. There's a the fourth Doctor is uh-huh. is, is 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 my Doctor. He's you know? my Doctor, um, yes. and and I think mm-hmm. you you do tend to find that. Pe- I've got this theory that whoever was the Doctor when you were eight or nine years old is your Doctor. Um, so Tom Baker is Tom Baker is mine and I have a life-size uh, version of him in my office, and a giant TARDIS. And ah. But think about it. What I've, what I've already communicated to mm. you about me and my passion, mm. a huge part of Doctor Who for me was not the forward-looking science fiction stuff, the Cybermen and the Daleks and right. things like that. It was the fact that Doctor Who could go back in time that he went back into history, and mm-hmm. I could I could express, you know, he would go to medieval times right. or, or whatever, and I love that because I lo- I love history, mm-hmm. um, but museums. Um, I think I I my first love actually is history, and and when mm-hmm. it came to that crunch point, like what do you want to do in life, my son? It was. Well, I could be a history teacher, Mm -hmm. I could be a professor of history, I could be an archaeologist, or I could work in museums. And I think it was possibly just like a little bit of romance that grabbed my heart, that took me down the museum path. I, I got a really splendid government grant that was all full boat scholarship and getting paid to go and do industrial archaeology in Ironbridge, Shropshire. But,
1: um, Industrial archaeology. Yeah,
0: Ironbridge is like the sort of famously one of the great birthplaces of the Industrial Revolution. The first, you know, early coal mines Mm. and the first smelting of iron and things like that. But, you know, I don't know. It didn't grab my, I I was going to go there and then I, I went to St. Andrews in Scotland which is the most amazing romantic Medieval town, and the sun was shining, and I thought uh, it's going to cost me more money, but I want to live here, and so it was. It was a li- slightly accidental, but it was. It was, you know, one. Sometimes follow follow your feelings, right. and, um, and 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 it will take you to a good place. So, you know, not completely by design. I, I, I almost by this sort of emotional accident, I ended up doing a doing a university degree about museum studies and and then that that i i just realized through the course of doing that that study which is very practical it was it was essential it was not a lot of theory it was basically every pretty much every day we're going to go and visit a museum and just talk to the people that run it and get in their heads and understand how do you do this mm-hmm. and it was just the perfect thing for me so it i think what it introduced me to fundamentally was sort of um, an understanding that if you run a museum, what you're fundamentally in the business of doing is creating memorable experiences for people. So earlier today I you asked me what was my first visit to a museum, and I was able to articulate mm-hmm. it and, and because I can see it in my head, museums can be very powerful places you know I, I can't remember any individual lesson I had at school mm-hmm. you know about math or physics or whatever but I but this when you get me as a child out of the school into this experience it's very powerful it, it has influenced the entirety of my life so um you know it, it it's been a it, it, it's a it's an interesting line of work because it, it you know, if you want to make money in life, don't get into museums. They they, they don't pay very well, and um, they're terrible businesses. Um, <laughs> you know that there's more there's more museums in America here than McDonald's and Starbucks put together. But um, I do find the, that stat fascinating. Yeah, but but you know, ninety five percent of museums are. Some to some degree, an economic failure. Um, they're really they're they're really hard to, to operate, and you're always you know uh, scrabbling for money. But there's something just so compelling about them that that you know causes causes people to create them and sustain them, and somehow you keep them going. Um, my my job here with Comic Con hopefully is to be in the five percent that is. Um, um, Economically sustainable and viable, and hopefully over the last thirty years, I've picked up um, the ability to to know how to to create something that's really successful from an experience point of view, but well. also do it in a way that's sustainable.
1: I don't want to. I don't want to brush over your um, your museum experience. Th- I mean, thirty years, and uh, when we were talking on the weekend, you mentioning some of the uh, uh, some of the museums that you've curated previously and. It's the idea of the museum creating an experience that if you can step into this and understand the history of this aspect it's, uh, uh, and relate it to a feeling, then you're going to have an impact on people. Whoa, I'm not sure how I got here, but this is a really cool podcast. Well... While I'm here, I guess I'll introduce myself. I am the incredible Jeff, the host of Fueled by Deathcast, the weekly podcast from the Deathwish Coffee Company. Each week, I get to talk with a special guest from rock stars to astronauts about what they do and what fuels their passion, because we're all fueled by death. We want to leave this world a little different before we inevitably leave it for good. Follow Fueled by Deathcast on all social media. And subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, or the Deathwish Coffee Company YouTube page. But for now, let's finish this awesome podcast. What are the highlights from your museum career? Some of the the oddities that you thought, I can't really necessarily, I don't know how to get this to be relatable. And then you've managed to pull it off as a success.
0: Yeah. um, One of the projects I worked on relatively early in my life was... um, I think what is widely acknowledged to be the first major exhibit that was ever done on the history of video games. Um, and we we started the development work on that in maybe nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine, 99, something like that. And certainly 20 years ago, if you st- stood up in a national museum, I was with the National Museums of Scotland at the time, and, and, and said, you know, we're going to do a a major touring exhibit on the history of video games. It was like what are you talking about? You know, this is not a valid subject for a museum. This is, this is like, you know, we're dumbing down the museum and we're, we're, but we, we persevered with it and credit to Mark Jones, who was the director at the time. because he really, he really, you know, uh, taught me a lot about how a powerful guy who was in charge of this huge museum could help a sort of a, 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 um, I was a nobody, but, but, you know, he helped me help, help the organization run with this idea and interestingly, that exhibit is still touring the world. It it's it's been refreshed refreshed a couple of times, wow. but it, it, it's um it was a great thing. Mm-hmm. So did we surprise people? Yes, we did, because frankly, nobody thought in the late nineties, early two thousands that that video games were even worthy of exhibition, that there was anything interesting there. But um, some of the things we did we partnered with the video game industry and and made it a career development exhibit so that so that people could see um, how a game is made and understand wow. the skills and talents that go into that. I, 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 I absolutely. I'm not trying to take credit for this, but the video game industry is now one of the biggest in Scotland, and I, I'd like. I think we maybe played a little part in just, cre- you know, creating um, an atmosphere in which in which video games were taken a little bit more seriously as an mm-hmm. economic force, and, and um, so that that one that one kind of sticks with me. I think something that I'm definitely bringing here to comic-con is a whole experience that i went through i did i did three aviation museums in a row i did um national museum of flight in scotland then came here to america and did uh, the eaa museum in oshkosh wisconsin then ended up with the commemorative air force in dallas texas and um so i spent a lot of time around airplanes and i think the interesting thing for me on that journey was that i I had when I got the first job running a national museum of aviation. I had never even been in an airplane, right. flown in one. I had knew absolutely zero about airplanes, um, couldn't care less about them. But so I, I went on this journey of of sort of learning about it, and and I think I really valued that perspective of being an outsider and bringing some skill in a, in museology and how we interpret this. This thing, because there are there are absolute hardcore fans of airplanes. You know, mm-hmm. they re, they know every rivet and every last thing about this airplane. And um, I think over time, I became one of those people too. Um, Fifteen years later, you realize I learned to fly. I have got a thousand hours of piloting time. I know everything about these planes as well now. Mm-hmm. But I actually felt that I became, to some degree, less effective. The more that I knew, the more baggage I accumulated. And I, I, I tried really hard not to lose it, but I, I, I became less, if, less able to tell the story to the person that I once was, the person that knew nothing. And, um, as I work on this Comic Con museum, I'm really conscious of this because I think a, a huge part of what we're trying to do with the museum is, not just to serve the fans, the people that really love this stuff and really know everything, but to be a gateway to those people that know mm. nothing.
1: I think that might be a good point to to talk about the Comic-Con Museum initiative and how it started, but also why it started. Comic-Con's been around for, for nigh on 50 years now and has very much very much charted part of the course of the growth of popular culture and the interest in popular culture. Why now? What's the point of the initiative and what is the mandate here? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, really good questions. I I can only partially answer the question of why, because, of course, before I was brought into the project, the 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 board and the staff of Comic-Con went through all those. But to, to the extent that I think I can understand it, first of all, having a museum was not like a new idea for Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Um, someone, we got a chuckle the other day because we got the 1974 program book for Comic-Con, and, oh. and in the first page oh. it says... One day we will have a museum for Comic Con. So, yeah, you know, it, it only took, it only took sort of uh, 50 years to, to get to that point. Right. But, um, I, you the more sort of pertinent question that you asked me was, you know, how, how did it come about? Um, the, the idea, I think, had been around for a long time. Um, I think to some degree, if you think about what Comic Con has become, might it might give you some clues? Um, the the Comic Con has been a sold out event now for more than a decade, so that's a wonderful thing. It creates mm-hmm. an energy, it creates you know a desirability about Comic Con. But if, as Comic Con is, you are a non profit mission based organization, and your mission is to is to share this passion and to share this love and this appreciation for the popular arts with more people, being sold out isn't the greatest thing because, right. um, you know, you, you ideally more people would see it. So, mm-hmm. um, to some degree, see the museum as a, a, you know, as an expansion of a mission. We can, you know, you can expand the mission by having more events and we've acquired WonderCon and, 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 and done other events as an organization. But, um, I think the museum fundamentally is is a method by which we can make... We can't deliver all of Comic-Con all the time, but we can... Um, as we're working on the project, we're saying, you know, we, we want to capture the magic of Comic-Con all year round in a venue that um, should be more accessible, um, s- something that, that people can come um, and, and, and visit as a family and, and things like that. And maybe the family aspect of it I look at demographics of Comic-Con, it is really heavily focused on sort of the 18 to 40 category of age. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the museum, we want it to be great and successful for that age range. I think particularly the vision we have for a nighttime museum um a place of entertainment and, mm-hmm. and shared fandom. I think it's going to be cool for the core Comic Con audience. But this project we we people hear me say it a lot. This museum needs to work for a five year old and an 85 year old. One of the things that I think we've realized is that fans actually do age, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and they they go through the natural progression of life mm-hmm. which is the you know often you have a family and you have kids and and i think one of the things we're doing with the museum is creating a place that our fans can bring their children and come and have a family experience mm-hmm. I, I think it's part of what's going on i think part of what's going on is that the museum is a place where you can uh, if you get a little bit older and you feel that you don't want to go to comic con anymore because it is so in it's a it's quite intense and you might not want you might have reached a point in your life where staying in light, standing in line for eight hours isn't cool you know bear in mind for some people it's a huge part of why they come because right. they enjoy it you know but some people don't and 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 maybe um the museum can be a place that they can go to i think as we look at the membership base that we're starting to establish around the museum it's got quite an int- it's got maybe an interesting demographic is starting mm-hmm. to emerge That's saying it's, t- it's going to make them there may be some older people coming to the museum which is great i love that because we don't want people to lose their passion so um i think there are things like this are kind of swirling in the background i think on some level there is just people look at a museum and a gallery and and think Hey, we could do some cool stuff, you know, that, 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 that would, that would be nice too. And then sometimes opportunity knocks. Um, and the opportunity that knocked on the door of comic con was this building became available in Balboa park. Um, I think as, as the idea of a museum had come and gone over the years, you know, you're sort of, well, where would this be and what kind of facility would it need? And it, nothing happens because you, you may be just looking at that or thinking mm-hmm. about that. But um, by probably as long ago as three years ago, the opportunity came up that one of the major museums in the park had reached a point where they felt they wanted to change their mission and it was a sports museum and they they weren't doing particularly well on attendance and decided that you know maybe a better direction for them would be to do more scholarships around sports and things like that. Right. So this once in a generation opportunity came up to have a really awesome building in Balboa Park, which, for those of your listeners that don't know it, is one of the world's great sort of city parks. I've been heard to describe it as like the Smithsonian and Central Park rolled up into one right. place. It's, it's um, 1,200 acres of very close to the center of San Diego and the city laid it aside more than a hundred years ago, and uh, in fact, this year, one hundred and fifty years, it's, wow. we just celebrated the the anniversary. And and um, in nineteen fifteen, and then in nineteen thirty five, they had some sort of really big expositions that left a legacy of these these fantastic buildings that um, now seventeen museums have been de- developed in. So we have. Really cool art museums, a science museum, wow. natural history museum, anthropology museum, etc. And and now we're going to have Comic Con museum, mm-hmm. and um, it just seems so perfect because um, since since Comic Con was begun, it's always been in San Diego since 1970. So we've become as an organization and, and a culture, I think, part of the fabric of San Diego. So maybe it wasn't always this way. I think um, some of the people have been around for a while still remember when San Diego maybe wasn't quite so welcoming of Comic-Con as, as it is today. Right. Um, because the comic book geeks or whatever were maybe seen as being low culture or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think by and large we've reached a point where, um, you know, the, the whole community for whatever reason is very, loves Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you don't like like the subject matter, you might like the fact that people, people come and drink in your bar or stay at your hotel or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, you know, that I, I, I've been very, I felt very warmly welcomed on the project and um, you know, we're, we're, we're basically working to try and bring this thing to life from in May of 2021, right? Uh, which is still a couple of years away, but we've got, we've got a lot of work to do to remodel the space and mm-hmm. create the kind of awesome place that I think people expect.
1: Is 2021, as you said, it's a couple of years away and this project's been sort of percolating for a couple of years already. Is that a normal time frame when it comes to a museum or is it that Comic-Con brings with it its own unique challenges that change how something like this could get set up?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I think for the size and scale of what we're doing, it's quite aggressive, in terms of a time frame i that's not to say i don't meet people that like are kind of what's taking you so long um but it would be pretty hard to make it go any faster than, right. than we're going even if you threw like a ton of money at it um it's it's hard to it's hard to make museum architecture design construction go fast cuz the mm-hmm. it is it, not it's not a million miles dissimilar from making a movie, you know. You, 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 um, you. It's hard to skip the necessary steps of writing the script and scouting the locations and getting the cast and mm-hmm. the props and then actually filming it and then editing it. And you know, there are just a basic set of steps that make it difficult. You can't make an awesome movie in in, in a year, you know. Right. I, I mean, you. you I'm not saying it's never been done, but generally it yeah. take, takes a while. Um, so I think um, it, it, it's probably it's enough time. It's moderately aggressive, and and um, but I a bit of pressure on a project, a bit you know, a bit of urgency doesn't sure. doesn't doesn't does you no harm. So um, yeah, it's, it's relatively normal. I think.
1: Okay. I mean, you're doing stuff like uh, physically building and making changes to infrastructure, etc., in the area. You can't just do that ad hoc unless you know what your final vision would most most definitely be. I mean, you're not going to knock a wall down to put a new staircase in unless you knew what that staircase was going to be. So yeah. you need to have that vision in place before you can then say, right, here's the commitment to the physical changes we're going to be making to the space. Yep. Yeah. Okay. The cover story uh, exhibit that's on there at the moment. Uh, uh, I was lucky enough to have a sneak peek at, at, at the artwork. How has that, uh, you had one um, exhibit evening? Is that yep. correct? Yeah. yeah. How, what was the reaction? Um, well, it was
0: kind of a biased crowd because there were all the, <laughs> the, the members of the museum so they loved it. <laughs> um, the, the just to sort of step back from your question for a second it, it this is the i think the third museum that i've worked on that didn't exist before and you're creating it mm-hmm. and 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 but it's the first one where i did where i have the building mm-hmm. already now we we do need to do a major remodel but we've got this for about another nine to 12 months we've actually got this building that is kind of usable it's got lights it's got restrooms it's got exhibit spaces um, so before we go into the construction phase it's actually really useful to have the op- opportunity to test some things so we've been doing this you know test programming almost a focus group a museum so the one you're talking about is really it's a test of what an art exhibition is uh, will look and feel like in the Comic Con Museum. We have a nice collection of the the art from the program cover books that Comic Con has published in association with the show over the last fifty years, um, and a bunch of it was already nicely framed. And we we, we saw the opportunity to frame a little bit more and, and put the show on, um, because uh, to 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 dis- to display the art in the in in the museum context because. One of the many things we will do at Comic-Con Museum is we will have an art gallery in there. Now, um, and I mean that as distinct from... There will probably be seven galleries in the museum in total that will have different contents. But when I say an art gallery, I actually mean something that's that's quite simple is it'll have white walls and nice lighting Mm -hmm. and the purpose of a a gallery space like that is you almost expressly don't bring in uh, visual distractions you just display the art as art as you as if you went into a in a fine art museum so one of the things i was testing or we are testing with with this exhibit that we just put on is what is how how do we feel about that what Remember what I said earlier, museums are about experiences, so what experience are we going to create by doing this? Um, and I, I, the best way I can explain it is that there's a piece of art in this show that actually um, we're talking, we're doing the interview here today at Comic-Con headquarters, we're on the 18th floor of a high-rise in downtown San Diego. Um but we we have a lot of art on the wall. I'm glad
1: you said it because no one's gonna believe me.
0: <laughs> um the, the, there's a there's a piece of art that I've walked past every day for the last fifteen months, uh, done by Sergio Aragones, who's mm. a well known artist with Mad Magazine and, and, and others. And um he did he did a wonderful illustration for us about ten years ago of it's kind of this huge crowd of people going from the El Cortez Hotel, which is one of the, the <laughs> spiritual home of early Comic Con, mm-hmm. uh, down to the convention center. And it's just this sort of mad, crazy gang of people in costume and just, just happily en- embracing Comic Con. And, and it, I've walked past, walked past this piece of art every day and it's kind of, that's cool. And uh, there's the art by famous artist Sergio Aragonas. But as soon as we put it in this gallery in the museum, there's something about context that when you change where it is and the context of it, as soon as we put it in a space that almost by definition says, this is a gallery, you're going to look at this as a piece of art now. Um, I just looked at it with new eyes and I, I I, felt a connection with Sergio and I could almost see his pen drawing it and mm-hmm. I, I saw details in it that I'd never seen before. There's just... Something about changing that context that so I'm being extremely long-winded here, but but it, it what I'm telling you is that as a proof of concept, it told me yes, we are going to have an art gallery and Comic Con Museum mm-hmm. because we can just do something different in this space and make people think differently about about the art. Right.
1: 2021, still a fair bit of work to do, but the membership drive is going to help here. How has the membership drive uh, uh, been going so far?
0: It's been going tremendous. Um, this is
1: quite unusual
0: for a project like this. The advice of the museum industry in general, when you're going through, we've got some fundraising to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've, I've got about $23, 24000000 million more to raise on top of what we've already got. Sure. Um, in order to deliver this vision. So huge part of my job is, okay, where, where are the resources coming through from this? Mm-hmm. The traditional museum path is you don't create a membership until like the last year of your project just before you open. Right. Um, but we wanted to begin with a membership program. I think to some degree to send a signal to the world that this is a different kind of museum. It's going to be rooted in mm-hmm. the people. The traditional museum... You might characterize as being kind of elitist in the way it's structured. That it, it, it a, a traditional museum hires experts called curators that yeah. sort of have all the knowledge and they decide what's important. And then they kind of, through their exhibits, they preach their gospel to the world. Right. And we absolutely, with Comic Con Museum, want to sort of invert that pyramid and, and, and say, Comic-Con as an event has always taken its energy from the people, from the grassroots, from these ordinary fans and the knowledge and passion that they bring. Mm-hmm. So um, having the membership program was, is, is a way to begin our project with the masses. Right. So um, it, it's particularly delightful that um, we haven't even been doing it a year yet and we've already got 12,000 members of a wow. museum that doesn't exist yet
1: and um, the standard comic con at uh, comic con last year you couldn't get near it
0: yeah it was it was it was great and now in some ways that helps with fundraising because you know all of those people have made a financial contribution to help the campaign but in in some ways it's almost as important that when we opened the exhibit the other night i had a couple of hundred of the members there and i thanked them for joining and and i said it your support it, when I go and talk to corporations and major donors and foundations f- from whom we are seeking major support for this project, mm-hmm. it sure helps me when I can say an army of 12,000 people stands behind me with their hearts and souls and passion already investing in this. It gives a level of confidence, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I appreciate the, the, the support financially that the members are bringing, but I also... They 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 sort of inspire us, you know. That okay, there is, we've got an obligation to these people. So, um, I'd I'd love to I'd love to get to a point where when we open, we've got at least fifty thousand members, which would be you know for a, for a, for a museum, that's a huge membership base. Mm. Um, but I, I that's it's 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 an important part of what we're trying to do.
1: Mm. I think the the last thing that uh, I'd like to touch on before we before we wrap up the idea that. Comic-Con is very much driven, you mentioned, by the energy of the fans, by the commitment of the fans, and the museum will have that as well, that there may be aspects of fan curation, but there's also an opportunity to extend just beyond art on a wall, that there could be much more experiential yeah. uh, from a pop culture perspective, especially from uh, from an art and a, uh, a story writing aspect. Can you give a can you talk on on that point on what some ideas might be?
0: Yeah, I'm I, I'm I'm not going to tell you everything because mm-hmm. I have to retain some element of surprise, you well, know. I'm just <laughs> going to stop right now. This, is, this has been a waste of time. Like, not at all. Not but uh, at all. but as you've asked, um, I think first of all fan curation absolutely just to you know, finish the point I was making earlier. Not just from a fundraising point of view, but we we literally want to invite fans to help us create the exhibits in Comic Con right. Museum. Um, this whole journey began a year ago for me with a survey we did of twenty four thousand Comic Con fans. You know, to to and I have a huge PDF document of all of their ideas. And um, the fun thing is, some of them we will do. You know, mm-hmm. um, can't do them all, but but but. Um, and we also want to have we're going to launch this this summer if we can pull it all together a, a an online portal called fanforge mm-hmm. which is expressly designed to give fans the opportunity to create and share ideas for exhibits in the museum so we are literally talking talking about this um but I think we we are developing some ideas for what the experience of the museum will be um you know, some of which involve things like virtual reality and augmented reality and, and mm. some kind of cool technologies. Um, that's kind of hard to describe because they're still at a very developmental stage right now. Maybe I, mm. I, I can speak in a more concrete way about some of the programming that will be in the museum. So if you understand a museum like this to not be just static exhibits that, mm-hmm. that might be on display... Um, but also, you know, the the cool activities that you might do when you're here. I'll talk about one in particular um, that's definitely influenced my thinking. Is um, there's an organization out of England where I'm from, which is called Secret Cinema, mm-hmm. um, and they've done over the last decade or so r- some really fantastic programming around what I would call experiential movie watching. I actually think there's a whole new way of watching movies that's starting to bubble up here. Um, and even in San Diego in the last 12 months, I've seen things like on the deck of the aircraft carrier, they show mm-hmm. Top Gun on the beach. They showed uh, Jaws, mm-hmm. you know, there's rooftop cinemas. There's yes. it, it, It's basically saying you're going to watch a movie that you've maybe seen a hundred times before, but, but we're going to, do it in a way that's kind of fun and
1: cool. Change the experience.
0: Well, Secret Cinema has really done this. That their, their their approach is like it's almost a blend of Cirque du Soleil and and, and movie. So they've really they've really pulled on this thread and, and made something incredible. I went to see one last April. Call, it was Blade Runner. Oh. And oh. the whole thing was, I guess, I guess we did actually sit down and watch Blade Runner, you know, but that really isn't what it was about. It was right. about I walked in the. I walked into the set of Blade Runner. I lived in Blade Runner. I ate the food from Blade Runner. I interacted with replicants. I went on a. You know that they they reenacted whole parts of the movie. Wow. You
1: know,
0: and 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 so me and six hundred other people had an incredibly immersive experience. And one of the th- things that we are doing with Comic Con Museum is. Um, Looking to pre- provide a venue where we can do things like that, That's incredible. Um, and 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 it's uh, I can leave it to your imagination because there's probably a thousand films that we can that that we could take that approach to, mm-hmm. and we're trying to create a facility that that you know we're not just thinking short term about this. It's mm-hmm. also what it. What's going to be here ten years, twenty years, thirty years right. down the line? Our right. lease at least, at least run until twenty fifty five. So we we're going to occupy the building at least until then.
1: That's a long time. This I'm, I'm so excited now. I'm so excited <laughs> for for all of the experiential aspects. Uh, that that Blade Runner cinema um, Secret Cinema sounds incredible. Yeah, I
0: mean, if you if you go look, if you just Google Secret Cinema, you mm-hmm. can see they've done. They did, they did Back to the Future in a really cool way. They right. did, you know, Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've done they've done loads of them. Right. They're great.
1: Adam, we've we're coming up to the to the end of the podcast. We traditionally finish off uh, when we when we speak to somebody uh, to ask them for maybe a pearl of wisdom, something that they've learned about themselves and their geek interests that uh, other other geeks might be able to take heart from or take some advice from is there uh, and it could be anything in relation to the upcoming museum events is there any particular pearl of wisdom that you've learnt over the years that you would like to share
0: um i think it is you know what's worked for me for sure is just in life in general is be true to yourself and mm-hmm your your own heart and your own gut feeling will tell you, you know, what is right for you. So I, I told you that story about how I ended up in museums because there was just something emotional about my gut feeling that said, choose this versus choose that. And and I think that um that lesson has applied to me in relationships, in um, you know, pretty much anything. Whenever I followed my heart, things went well. Whenever I overruled my better judgment, you know, or my whenever overruled my heart because, you know uh some 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 other force caused me to do that, it didn't go well. And I think that applies to um I think that applies to geekdom as well I think there's certainly an element of some of my interests that maybe my parents didn't like and you have, you have to hide it for some reason or maybe it's not cool in the moment um, you know your friends don't think that what you're into is like the coolest thing or whatever but if you and your heart believe that it's right for you you know it's it, it, it'll end up alright you'll end up you know that sometimes that which wasn't is uncool turns out to be cool or whatever. I definitely find this talking to a lot of the artists in the world of comic-con they they often feel that they were that kid at school that you know couldn't compulsively would draw and couldn't stop and um, one of the things that they want me to do is to send a message to that kid that it's okay Mm-hmm. You know, even though even though the teachers telling you not to draw, you keep drawing because mm-hmm. your heart is telling you that's what you want to do. You know? So, heck, I've turned into like I don't worry, asking me for pearls of wisdom? No one's <laughs> ever done that before. <laughs> Did my best for you. It's it. a that's a
1: fantastic <laughs> piece of advice, and Adam Smith. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it, and we wish you. All the best of luck with the Comic-Con Museum initiative.
0: Thanks, Les, and, and uh, all the best of luck to you and what what you're doing in South Africa as well. Oh, it sounds you. absolutely fascinating, and if we can help
1: that in any way, you, you tell us. That's quite magnanimous. Thank you so much. That was Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. It's what the chain of command is. It's a chain I go get and beat you with till you understand who's in rotten command here. To contact the show, you can email us at release the geek one word at geekxp.co.za. Thanks for listening. I'll be back.